everyone. Welcome back to Chats with Kat on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. I'm your host, Kat. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. Don't forget to grab your coffee, tea, or a preferred beverage and settle on in. I'm currently here with Jess, who is a fellow writer who uses her platform for advocacy. Jess, welcome to the show and briefly introduce yourselves to those who are listening. Sure. Thank you for having me. My name is Jessica Gardner. I am a fellow adoptee raised in Long Island, New York, born in Louisiana, and currently living in Boston. I work with children. I'm certified in Reiki. I do a lot of advocacy for adoptee reform, as well as silent, invisible disabilities, all which kind of plays into my role as an adoptee and yeah, how my story kind of took a 180 and kind of changed my whole life as well as my career path. Yeah. Okay, so it's interesting because you say it changed your it changed your life and your career path. Let's get into that first before we sure. begin anything. How did it do that? So I went to school for fashion and art and marketing within that industry and product development. So, yeah, as a child, I struggled a lot in school. I mean, as far as learning and things like that. But one thing I did know about myself was that I was very creative. And so I figured, like, if I was going to do something in life, like, it would have to be something along those lines. The older I got, the more I developed an interest in clothes and fashion and sewing and patterns and colors and textiles and things like that. So I ended up starting in ninth grade, taking college courses at FIT and, you know, knowing that I struggled so much in school that I kind of had to get a leg up, right, by taking the classes to have almost to be able to enter college with a pretty decent resume may within the industry. So I'd get accepted. So I did get accepted. And it's, you know, the plans you have for yourself or the things you think you would want or how you would like to be. Sometimes, whether you like it or not, life has different plans, That's, you know? Yeah. And I had never had any interest in children, working with children, or anything like that. And when I was 25 years old, I ended up going to Israel. And that was my first experience with young children, older children, and teaching and when I came back to the United States after like a year and a half, I decided that I wasn't going to go back into the industry that I wanted to be in. And I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And it, I stumbled upon childcare and nannying and things like that. And I took it at first as like some, as a side job of something, somebody just trying to figure out what is their next step. And I just never left. And then it, turned into, you know, getting myself trained in Reiki and hopefully starting to do Reiki with children, specializing in children. And all this kind of plays back into like, I think, having very deep emotions as a child and being a a sensitive child taught me to be sensitive and to be able to hear children, the, the voice of children, if that makes sense. And that is where I think my forte lives, lives, you know, is being able to hear and understand and feel the needs of children and to help them navigate themselves and the world they are in supportively and safe, safely. 
Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, you're and as a fellow adoptee, I can obviously firsthand understand exactly why you chose that path. And I've always said where people who experience trauma themselves realize that they don't want other people to go through the trauma that they themselves experience, but they also have a deeper understanding of the trauma or circumstances that a lot of other people have gone through because they themselves have gone through it as well. And getting to the topic of adoption, you know, where, when were you adopted? Where were you adopted from? And let's start this discussion about the adoption. So I was adopted at two weeks old from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I did know the name of the hospital. It was Baton Rouge Women's Hospital. I had that information because I was sent with my baby blanket from the hospital and I, and I kept that. So that was my first clue, you know, that was, you know, so, but even as an adoptee, you know, if I wanted to get my birth records with a name change, they're not yours, Mm. you know? Even when you're of age, I couldn't call up the hospital and, hey, can I have, can I have these? Or call up my birth mother and be like, can you get these for me? Like, I, yeah, there are so many things you just don't have access to. And for me, when you said trauma, like, my trauma didn't come from, for me personally, I feel from so much, like, I mean, there's a lot of studies that say, yes, there is trauma with, you know, um, when the bond is severed, right, from mother to child and what that does to the nervous system and dysregulates it and they're kind of forced into the world automatically not being safe, feeling safe and, you know, that whole thing. But for me, which I totally believe, but in addition to that, what really affected me was a child who wanted to know and have yeah, wanted to know basic, the most basic things about themselves, genetics, like, you know, who I looked like and things like that. And as a child, like, none of this is in your control. None of this do you even know that you're ever going to find, which is even harder. Like, as a child, had I known 110% that one day I would find where I came from and who, the void would be smaller because I would have had something to look forward to that I could have been sure about. But you don't know you know, and not knowing is a very difficult part. Oh, yeah, definitely. And there goes my puppy. <laughs> but what did so growing up for you, how did not knowing affect you? You said that you're you were a sensitive child. So you remind me a lot of myself, I was a particularly sensitive child. And the aspect of not knowing really also had a, a struggle for me. So how did it affect you? I mean, I didn't realize until I was much older, but, you know, like, attachments, you know, like, I would be very sensitive to, like, it was weird, it would, it would go in birth, both ways, two ways, I was very able to cut off ties and feel nothing from people, while also, that, I think that happened more so when I got older, but as a protective mechanism, but when I was younger, like, the thought of play dates, if the play date was canceled or things like that, or like not being picked up on time, or I don't even know how else to describe it. There were certain triggers that I would absolutely lose my mind over. And also just sensitive. I was very emotional to the things I would, would say if I didn't feel like I fit in or was heard or listened to would send, send me spiral, spiraling. And for me, spiraling meant that I would just stop talking. 
You know, I wasn't somebody who had these outbursts or behaviors. You know, when I was upset, I would become silent. Yeah, I I understand firsthand. I actually was was mute for quite a few years in my life just because I for me I felt like I wasn't heard. I wasn't re- you know, no one wanted to hear me. So why am I going to talk if no one wants to hear me anyway? And I didn't then that comes with like not knowing how to process your emotions. I find that emotional intelligence is something that is that needs to be taught, especially to children at a young age. You know, as parents, I feel like it's important to teach your child what emotional intelligence is, what what each feeling means, why it's okay to feel that feeling and how to deal with those feelings. And for like when you were adopted, did you find that your adoptive family helped you through that or did they kind of hinder the process? Completely hindered. Yeah, that was my experience too. Whenever I did have, whether it be my adoption or something else, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I also kind of contributed a little bit to the, the generation that I grew up in, which is the 90s, you know, that a child is a child. And it's not so much, you know, it's, it's I don't want to say you're a child, so like, you don't really know what you're talking about and I know better, but that's what it felt like when I did have, when I knew and was able to vocalize certain things and they were either disregarded, not listened to, not taken care of, and I was left in the same position that I went to help for, you know, I then would feel like, which is kind of how, like, this this all ties in together. My voice, my story is not important. What I have to say does not matter. And that was another thing that was very triggering to me and still is triggering to me, like, as an adult feeling unheard and dismissed in any capacity. Yeah, I think that's very common because that's also something that I struggle with. It's one of my triggers. And I mean, for me, even to this day, if if I feel like I am not being heard or listened to, I just, I be quiet. And I kind of do this thing where I sit back and I kind of just raise my eyebrows and I'm like... It's so weird because once I reached my late 20s, and started to really connect certain dots, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just started getting louder. You know, once I started speaking, it just got louder and louder and louder and on multiple platforms. And I would have lots of people here or there, wherever, coming to me, you know, why are you talking about this? Like, it doesn't need to be spoken about. And I would always say, like, whoever it's meant for, they'll find it. And whoever doesn't need it, you don't have to have it. You don't need to take anything away from it. Yeah. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do with it, how I, how I feel like it. Cause not only does speaking help me, you know, I never realized the amount of people it would connect to, to, to then message me back all around the world, you know, and create community, Yeah, community that I did not have. I did not have that. And it's important. So, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm actually... It's interesting because part of me is shocked that that happened to you, but also part of me is is not shocked because I don't know if it's from other adoptees that have said that or if it's from non-adoptees who have said that. 
I feel like sometimes there's a sort of policing that kind of goes on within the community in general, in the adoptee community, and just within society in general, among the public, where people try to always tell you like what to think, how to feel, how to be. And it's kind of like, I just want to be myself. And I think it's more people that don't, that aren't a part of the trifecta at all. Yeah. You know, why is this important? Why do you want people to know? Why are you sharing this? You know, can't it be shared another way? But like, I'm one person Mm -hmm. and I don't really know how else to share. I'm not writing a book. Mm -hmm. I'm not a podcast host. All I have is the community that I've kind of developed online, I guess. And, and be it a small community, it's, it's still, it's, it's, it's still something, but yeah, like when I first started, before I started Instagram, it was on my personal Facebook. So you're having, you're having, you know, strangers read it, friends read it, family members read it. And, and so I'm very outspoken behind a screen, but in person, it's very interesting because then you go out and you sometimes see people and you realize these people know everything about me. They know all my dirty laundry. The majority of it because I've aired it <laughs> so which is fine for me but yeah I've had yes yeah, you know some people say oh it's too personal or you know what's the point but yeah the, what I take from that is it's just because you don't relate and you don't need it and it and it doesn't relate to any part of your story which frankly like makes sense to me Right. I guess why, you know, why you have to say anything about it, I don't know. But I, I you know, I, I guess I understand, you know. At the end of the day, it's your story, it's your voice, and it's your right to put that on social media if you want to. And at the end of the day, like, look what happened. Like, you, you put that out there and so many people came back to you with positive messages saying, I relate. I totally understand. I've been there. I'm, I'm going through this, that, and the other. So I'm proud of you for doing that because that's actually, that's scary. It's a very scary thing to, to do, to put that on the web and to, you know, you never know how people are going to react and you're taking the good with the bad. And for me, that's growth, you know, sensitive people like us. I, I, Sometimes I worry that if if any if people are like me, they kind of take everything to heart. But I'm proud and really happy to see you kind of going through that and being like, okay, there is the negative, but there's also all of these positives. And I feel like that's a very good way to look at situations, life, and it's it's a very strong and resilient tone to have to yourself. And I think you should give yourself a lot of credit for that. And I think like what helps, because there were times like there was someone said, somebody that I knew personally said something like really hurtful. And they were just like, not only do I think like this, but like everybody I know thinks like this. And, and, you know, this is when like within the first year that I started coming out with like different aspects of my journey Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, not just with adoption and uh, lots of things in general. And I, I did take it to heart and I felt, I just felt, I just felt stupid. Like, I just felt stupid for sharing. But then, like, that only lasted a little bit before I went back on and kept going because I I have this thing, and I think a lot of people, uh, adoptees or people with dealing with all different types of struggles, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I've been through so, so much that, and... um. 
I have this thing where I'm not okay with my story if it's going to die with me. If it's only going to affect me or change me or better me or help me, you know? Right. Uh, Because the good and bad parts of my story have all done that. But for me, it's like the people who create change and who are supposed to create change in whatever capacity are the people who've gone through certain things. I can expect somebody who's not adopted to help the system, change the system, help these children coming into it. Somebody who's not, not well-versed in the situation. Like, you know, it's, it's up to people who go through the shit to, to help others, help, help others go through it. Yeah. You know, that's it. Like whether you're changing anything or not, but to let other people know that, you know, there's people who have come out on the other end or who are there to guide you or who just care, you know, Yeah. ultimately. So talk to me growing up during like your teen, let's go to your teen years. Um, let's start out in like eh, middle school and work your way through high school. Like, do you feel like your adoption affected your um, attachment styles and the way you looked at people? Did it, did it affect you on a, on a deeper level in that way? Because I, I find that that's a, a, a common thing among the adoptee community where a lot of people are saying like, I had severe issues trusting. I had severe issues with self-identity. I had abandonment things that I, I had going on and I didn't know how to um, appreciate people or how to trust that they were going to stay in my life. Sort of. Period. Yeah. For me, I mean, and going back to a child, I definitely had issues with, you know, feeling like not my parents, but feeling like not even feeling fear. Mm-hmm fear that I would be alone in the world, mm-hmm. even though I had a family to take care of me, support me and love me. I still had this like fear that, okay, but like, I'm just going to be alone. Like somehow anyway, there was that. And more so than trust. I don't feel like I had trouble trusting people, right? but I did not feel when you're adopted. I think people forget that like, or it's easy to forget when you adopt a newborn that they are not, and the terminology is a blank slate, right? This is a baby with different heritage, complete different genetic panel coming into a, another person's heritage and genetic panel. Mm-hmm. And so for me, even now, it's hard to feel like I'm under. Not that I belong. I always felt like I belonged, but I'm different. I am different from my family. Right. And I feel different from my, so for, as a child, that was hard. But for me, yeah, like I said, I didn't have so much the trusting, but I did have like major issues and I still do with wanting to try to control situations that to, to give me a false sense of safety mm-hmm. that, that ended up in uh, years of eating disorders. And yeah, going back to people, it, <laughs> It made me, um, something I still fight is people are very, I don't like, disposable to me. I'm very easy to love somebody, care for somebody, and all that be real while also cut ties, if that makes sense. Because no matter what, I have to be okay. 
I have to be okay. I have to be okay. And I have to be okay alone. Totally understand what you're talking about right now. I, I, it's almost, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's like disassociative, but it's like, it's a protective measure. It's a protective thing that we do for ourselves that we don't even realize is a protective thing where like, I totally understand. Like for me, it's kind of like if, if one, if someone, if I'm friends with somebody, good friends with somebody, if they do anything, even no matter how small it is, that makes me feel and like some sort of negative way about them. Like I can cut ties like and be done and move forward with my life. And I always make the point to say to people, my good opinion, once lost is lost forever. That's a quote from Pride and Prejudice for those who don't know, but it's the absolute truth. And it's because I was, I was raised in my adoptive family where respect is earned, it is not given. And I really understand that because of my adoption, it's, it's earned, it's an earned thing. My trust, my respect, my, just me in general, I am earned. I am not just going to give myself to you because for me, I'm like, you may leave me anyway. You're, you may, you may not respect me and hear me anyway. So why would I put effort into something or someone, if you're not going to respect me, care about me and reciprocate what I'm doing for you sort of. And as a, as a child and teenager and young adult, I had zero boundaries at all I understand like people may like walking on me and taking advantage of me and things like that I just thought like they are if they are do this it's because I deserve do you understand you know so and that turned into an adult who is very choosy about who is going to come into my life and I now have the mentality of unless you are going to enrich my life you're not welcome and I don't care if you're family and I don't care if you're an old friend or or a stranger or anything. I just don't give my time to things that I'm not going to enjoy and feel alive from. Totally agree. So like, okay, so this is a really good place where I want to kind of take it into a, a little bit different of a direction while we're in this headspace. Speaking, yeah. like speaking of headspace, if we were to look at your mind throughout your life, like as a child, and if you could picture what the inside of your mind looked like, how would you describe it visually? Is it a house? Is it, is it just a mess? Is it, you know, is it like a dark and scary place? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a child, it would have been like one singular being up against like an abyss. And so how did that change from being a child into growing into a teenager, into growing into an adult? It still feels like that, even though I have great relationships and good relationships with my family and my parents and great friends, I still have this protective mechanism, like I mentioned, that, you know, um, and even relationships with my biological family and my sisters, like, you know, and I, I have all of that. And at the end of the day, is I still feel like I have this thing about me that, like, no matter what, I have to be okay and I have to be okay alone. So it's this sort of self-independence where it's like you're looking at a mirror and you're seeing yourself in that mirror. You're not seeing, like, a bunch of people trying to help you. It's really like you're alone. Yeah. Got it. I, I know, even though I know I'm not and I don't, it's like, I'll put it this way. I'm adopted 
into a family. I have an adoptive sister. Right. My adoptive sister, I've never really felt any connection to other than just her being an other human being. In addition to that, my she it's a different sibling relationship. She's also somebody with like severe disabilities. So she's in a group home. I was relinquished when I was born, but I had an older sister. After I was born, my two younger sisters were born. And for me, I've always grown up kind of feeling like an only child and somebody who also doesn't feel like, not that they are loved by their extended family, but I don't feel similar to them. I don't feel, I don't feel like when all is said and done and my parents are gone and I'm going to feel alone, you know? I do. Like, I don't have children. I don't know if I will. And I don't have my sisters Mm -hmm. here, you know? And I don't have a relationship with my extended family that makes me feel like, and part of that is my own doing. Like, I feel like, like, if I don't feel understood, I don't. You know, I don't know. I don't I don't go around as much, I guess. But, like, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid that, like, once my parents pass away, who I am very close to, I will be alone. Right. And I and I do, even though I'm engaged, I have a fiancé oh, wonderful. And his family, I still have this thing where I'm like, no matter what I go through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be alone. So you're talking about how... Once your adoptive parents die, you know you're going to be alone. And even though you have the second part of your family, which is your fiance's family, it's still not the same. There's not, is it because there's not like a connection or? No, I'm connected to all these people. But at the end of the day, people, most people have children or they decide to have children or they have siblings and their children. And in, in that respect, I don't have any of that. You mean here? And I have, yes, here. But then, you know, I've also been asked, you know, on other podcasts too, do you ever think about moving to Louisiana? And it's like the only time I would, where I'm from, the only time I would ever think about that is if my parents were to die. My One of my big support systems are my two, my two sisters mm-hmm. in Louisiana. And the hard part about that is, is like, I feel like, if I were to do that, I'm leaving one family for another. Yes, that guilt. I understand. And I'm leaving. They talk about privilege and the gratefulness of adoption. I There's two sides to that, right? But I'm leaving all that that's given to go back home. And that's like all sorts of messed up in my brain. So let me give you a bit of context about like me. I feel like this is a good place for me to like interject. Recently, um, in July, my mother passed away and she was, she was the only adoptive parent left. My father had passed away in 2021 and she just passed away like last month in July. And I, I understand that feeling where for me, I'm like, I don't really want to go home because I almost feel like I'm betraying, for me, I feel like I'm betraying my adoptive parent, especially my mom. She really did not want me to go back home to, to my, my birth country. She wanted me to just be free and be me and not go back and like go, go back to where I came from sort of deal. And, you know, when you're a child, you don't really understand 
why your parents, your adoptive parents act the way they do, why they, they treat you a certain way, why they don't support certain things that you, that you want. But for me, like once she passed away, I understood so much. I understood that she did the best that she could with what she knew how, you know, not all parents know how to show their love for their child, et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, know how to show their love for the child in the way that they need, I guess is more what I'm saying, you know? So like, I think like when you're adopted, there's a lot of different hurdles that you have to jump and not all parents are prepared for that. And I don't think there's books and, you know, even podcasts, like nothing can, can truly prepare the parent because each child is different. Each thing that they go through is, is different. You, you know, it's personal to them. So I, I understand, but when my mom passed, like, I felt like I knew exactly who I was. I felt like I knew exactly who I was supposed to be, where I was supposed to be, where I wanted to be. And that's why I say to people, I am proud of who you were. I'm proud of the journey that you took to get to who you are today. I'm also proud of who you are today and the journey you're currently on to try to figure out who you want to be, because that's difficult, especially when you're adopted. I mean, on a general level, it's, it's difficult, but when you're adopted, I, sometimes I feel like there's an extra, extra layer. And I think even for you, like, you know, we didn't even talk about how you found your family and things like that. And you know, how, how that all came about, but I understand as do many other adoptees, the, the struggle of just not knowing, not understanding, not, you know, feeling that alone and everything, you know, we, we all understand. One of the hard things, hard, interesting things, I would say, about being in reunification, and I found my family when I was six, no, 19 years old in 2006, and one of the interesting things is there's no immersion. I go to my adaptive family, my extended family. They all know I'm in reunification. They all know I travel and, you know, go a decent amount. Mm -hmm. And nobody really, until I started posting about certain things on social media, did anybody ask about my family or where I come from or my sisters or their ages or circumstances or, or their names or anything about anybody. And, you know, now that like I'm engaged and trying to figure out what to do about my wedding and it's like, I feel like I can't blend my world. Will my world ever be blended? You know, which is why, you know, the thought of going back to Louisiana, which I do think about, you know, my fiance has brought it up. We've spoken about that like a lot is difficult because it's like, yeah, you really are leaving one, one part for another to an extent. Like, I think a lot of my um, extended adoptive family would not understand my thought process in doing so. And yet, and it's like, I'm going to get married and it's like, and I have siblings and it's like, you feel like you can't have everybody together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that. And I would not be here in any capacity, like, and be who I am without both sides. And the fact that that can't be like celebrated or shouldn't be celebrated is difficult for me to wrap my head around. You know, it's like, oh, well, we had your biological family here. Like, how would that make your other family feel? And I'm just like, really, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, that is a really tricky thing. 
nobody asks you know what I mean nobody asks no there is no immersion other than you know the first time I met my biological mother my my mom did come down with me Um, my father's never met them really has no interest at all yeah it's a really it's a really interesting thing I mean as I have a lot of people online like messaging me, how do I know when I'm ready for unification? How do I know when I start searching? How will I know when I'm ready? Or, you know, other questions. And it's like, I always say like, when the pain of not knowing who you are outweighs what you could potentially find, you know, because you have to weigh those things into consideration. But I'm lucky that I found which was my gut instinct. Like I, I never had an issue. Yeah. I think I said, I didn't feel like I had an issue with the fact that I was given away because I, somehow instinctually as a child, I knew that it was lack of resources, mm-hmm. plain and simple lack of resources. And, and I never felt unloved or given away or anything like that. The hardest part for me was not being in control of my information when I wanted to search, how I can search, like, help like being of age like all of this you're at the you're at the hands of the court system and even now i've been in reunification since i'm 19 years old i do not have access to my records well that in itself is strange because i always thought personally like because in in the state see like international adoption i feel like you know there's closed adoption there's open adoption and when it's when it's closed adoption it's really because of like maybe it's like the government right and and things like that i i was i was speaking to someone else who was talking about like the difference between closed and open adoption which i found very very interesting and it's something like this is something that i didn't expect to hear from america i guess like in the mm. states like you i i always thought that like especially with like ancestry I remember typing in like my last name and like my biological last name and obviously nothing came up because I'm not American. I like I my family is yeah. not American. So I'm I'm like how did you find your family? Like talk to me about that journey and talk to me about like the headspace that you were going through when you were looking and when like how did that come about? How did you find them? Like you know because you're saying that you had a lot of trouble and I'm kind of like really I, yeah, well, I mean, as I was born in Louisiana where, I mean, the laws, weird, the laws in adoption are really lax. Like at the time of my adoption, you can come in from other countries to give birth there and your child will be a U.S. citizen and you can go back, the mother. Mm, yeah. That was legal. It's It was legal from women. A lot of women were traveling from all over the rest of the United States just to go to Louisiana to give birth. And because for whatever reason, the adoption system was lack it as a child I was given as I think I wanted information I was given bits and pieces right so that I was slowly putting things together I had my baby blanket so I knew I was born in Baton Rouge Louisiana when I was older I was given a last name and I mean that was really I guess about about it and that my mother was young she was 18 years old and it had to do with you know poverty and lack of resources I always felt as a child that I had a young, that I had an older sister. Mm-hmm. And um, when I decided to search, I was looking for her. I wasn't even looking for my biological mother. And one thing I tell other people who reach out to me, it's like, that I'll say is, 
children, adoptees included, don't want to enter unknown territories and feel unsafe. So the way in which I went about finding my family and the questions that I asked was only when I was ready for it, which is something I think adults don't understand, right? Because we are at the hands of an adult, but I was never going to ask somebody for information when I was not ready to hear it, even if that meant that I was seven years old. You know? I do. Give give children the credit they deserve to handle some hard things, especially things that's theirs. Right. And I think people have the mentality of, well, they're already adopted, so we don't want to give them much harder things. But it's only going to make it worse. Right. You're not protecting them from anything. So I was always told, as my mom is an LCSW, as a child, she specialized in women with infertility and adoption. And, and that, you know, infertility is why I was adopted by my adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. So I always thought, like, as a child, if I need the help to find this stuff, I have the best person to help me. Like, this part of this is my mother is, is her specialty, you know. But what I didn't realize is her specialty is the other end. How do you not the adopt not the not the adoptees end. It's infertility. It's women who can't have children. It's women who want to adopt. It's not the adoptee themselves. Got it. Okay. But I didn't understand that till I got older. But she always did tell me, oh, you know, when you're ready to, if you need, feel like you need more things, like we'll help you, we'll help you. So as I got older, probably around middle school, I mean, by this point, by the time I was nine years old, I was rummaging through my house, like looking for boxes, looking for documents, and I couldn't find anything because like you know as a child that things come with paperwork Mm -hmm. so where's the paperwork right where's the stuff from the lawyers and the agencies and things like that and I just couldn't find anything and so you know when I was middle school is when I was like you know like I'd like to know a little more well we don't really have like any more information but when you're 16 you know, maybe we'll help you search if you think you'll be ready by then. And I was like, all right, that sounds good. Like, like I said, like, as long as you give somebody a glimmer of hope to hold on to, it lessens the void. But I turned 16. And, you know, I'm told by, you know, my parents, oh, my mother, uh, we're, you're not ready. You know, let's move it to 18. I get to 18. I'm now 18 years old. I'm in college. Not ready. Not ready. Well, by this point, I start dealing with like major depression, suicidal ideation. You know, I think... I think, I, so I think not being able to find my stuff on my terms mm-hmm. was very difficult because then it made me feel like, well, it's not because I'm not ready. It's because they're not ready. And how am I supposed to trust my parents who promised they would help me? I have nobody else to help. And that led me down this rabbit hole of kind of like going throughout my whole life and find you know just realizing certain things that I was blinded to about things that they did that were not in my best interest if that makes sense it does if I can't trust them about this what else what else is wrong what other information is wrong that was fed to me this and that and the whole other thing right Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I had an older sister and I walked in one day to like science class in college 
And the girl sitting next to me, her name was Holly. And I had never met a Holly. She goes, oh, my name is Holly. Nice to meet you. I'm, I'm staring at this girl. And I'm like, gosh, like your name sounds so familiar. And I just never forgot that. And that within like a month of that, I wrote out my whole story. Hello, my name is Jessica. I'm an adoptee raised in Long Island, born in Louisiana. Gave my last name, the hospital I was born in. And mentioned the fact that I felt like I, I had a older sister, but I really didn't know anything more than that. And I mass messaged this to about 2,000 people within a 35-mile radius of Baton Rouge Women's Hospital. Wow. Hoping, knowing, knowing, because at the time I, I was in college, I was studying target market and demographic, knowing that if I did have a sister and if she was older than me, either she had social media or somebody who knows her. Right. Also... I did my research about the surrounding towns of Baton Rouge, and a lot of them are very small communities. Mm -hmm. And I thought something like my story in Louisiana wouldn't leave a small community. Somebody will know. I just had this gut instinct. Somebody's going to know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how. I, every, when, I, when you think back about it, it seems so far-fetched that this even worked, but I mess message and I had so many nice people wishing they could help me and whatever. But then one day I got a message from this girl and she looks at my photo and she goes, I, I'm from, you know, Fort Oche, Louisiana, where my family's from. And my, my best friend has, um, an older sister whose little sister was relinquished and you look just like her mother. She goes, I don't know much else, but I'm going to bring, she brought her laptop, carried it over to, um, to my biological mother's house. Right. And I've never gone through genetic testing for my, for my, um, well, at that time for my adopted, for my biological family, it was just like, she knew who I was. I saw her image and. I knew who she was and I showed the image to my adopted parents and gave the name and they knew the name. They had the name. So, and then, so yeah, so I've been in reunification since and it, it's so weird because it's like, I also tell people if you have a intuitive like hunch, really take that because I had nobody to tell me I had an older sister. Not only that, when I did my, my, when I targeted my search, I also had a feeling that my sister was two and a half years older than me. Mm -hmm. And so I targeted to, targeted to only people born between the years of 1983 and 1986. I was born in 1987. My sister was born in 1984. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I did my search 35 miles from the hospital. My family's 32 miles from the hospital. You know, there's there's no reason for me to have found them the way I did, if not for hunches, intuition, and luck. Yeah. I really, like, you know, feel that way. And, you know, I had no reason to believe that, you know, six years after that, Ancestry would come out and all these other DNA sites. As a child in the 90s, like, you have to remember, like, we had no reason to believe that we would have these sorts of things available to us. We had, I had nothing except a little baby blanket and a, and a name and a last name and a state, mm -hmm. like a giant ass state.
define these people. Right. And, and no help. I did it alone. Like I did it all by myself. And, but you, you know, I had nine, not 19 years, but I had since my childhood of, you know, researching the state of Louisiana and the surrounding towns and the population of these towns and, and being since a child, my own detective and putting together the pieces of my story, you know? Yeah. Honestly, that's, that's really like beautiful. And it reminds me of like, it's very similar to my story. And it's, it's comforting because at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of adoptees, I mean, you're right. I was born in 92. So for me, it it was hard growing up. We didn't have the resources. And um, I mean, even for me, like finding my family, like I was doing it by myself. I was not getting help from anybody. And then it's just like you said, like it was luck. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know whatever it was, but it's, it's very similar where I was able to find my family because someone reached out to me and helped me find Mm. them. I was very, very fortunate um, that social media had kind of come around when it did. And, you know, then Ancestry and all these things. For for you, I'm so happy that Ancestry worked. For me and for, I think, international adoptees who, you know, your family does not reside in the States, it's it's futile. It's It doesn't really, like, do anything. I always like to ask adoptees this. What is one piece of advice that you now would give to the younger version of yourself. God, that's like really difficult. I mean, like the older I get, the more I allow myself to just go through things I need to go through and feel the things I need to go through no matter how long it takes to feel and process them instead of locking them away. And as a child, like, I was very silent and I didn't talk about my problems. I don't think I even understood many of my emotions. And I buried so many things until one day I, you know, physically imploded. And um, yeah, that I would tell my childhood self that it's, it's also safe and safer to feel these things, you know? Yeah. Even if it means that maybe even as a child, you have to feel them alone and you don't have the support, it's better than burying it and locking it away because it's just going to come up at another time. It's going to, my adoption, like, has shown up in my adult life issues in ways that, like, I didn't expect, like, you know, like, and it led me, like, you know, all it took was one person that I know who is actually an adoptive mother to say to me or to hear enough of these comments who 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 knows what you would be without your adoption how lucky how grateful you should and I just want to hit these people in the face I wish as a child I had a place to grieve because I didn't. I was always Jessica Gardner, the very proud adoptee, because I came from a place of love, and I have people who love me, and I'm so lucky. And all of that is true, but it never allowed me, until I'm 30 years old, many years after reunification, to go down the rabbit holes of myself to see how this all really affected 
my life and trying to undo the coping mechanisms and things about myself that I created in order to survive this. So how did you do that? How did you specifically do that? I'm still doing it. I don't know if it's ever going to end. Like, you know, there were times where I wished I never went down this rabbit hole, right? Some people live their whole life and they don't choose to do that. For me, it was a solid choice that like, I deserve freedom, even if it's years of pain getting there, feeling this stuff. You know, luckily, me kind of hashing through this and talking about it online publicly about, you know, my want for reform for this system and how I feel personally about it within my situation does not and will not ever change or threaten my place in my adoptive family. You know, like. It's hard to publicly talk about these things, knowing that it could potentially hurt the people you love. Right. But you do it hoping that they understand and you're honest with them. And also knowing that it's these types of stories that will create change and reform and open up, opening up records for these children coming into the system, hoping that they will get the trauma therapy that they need to um, coexist better. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's been a very interesting, you know, process. And I always talk, my, you know, my therapist said like, you know, who do you think you would be, you know, without this? I'm like, I have no idea of knowing. So when people come at me with that, I don't know what I would be if I lived in poverty. I don't know what what I would be if I was kept with my siblings and not separated. I don't know what I would be if I did not have um, the privilege that I had because of this and it all can coexist and it does so I wish people understood that you know the reason I talk about maybe online publicly the not so good things it's because people a lot of people know the good things that's what's spoken about that's the narrative that was given to me right right the gratefulness and the privilege so I don't speak about that as much I speak about you know the hardships and, you know, what it really means and feels like to be an adoptee. I think that's amazing. Yeah. And I hope it does. I mean, within, within the, I feel like I'm finally coming out of like my, what do you call it? Fog. God. It's so weird. Cause when I entered that, I didn't even know, like, I had no idea what expect. It was just very like slow rolling of uncovering things, uncovering the fact that like the lawyers that handled adoptions in my area are all, they've all lost their licenses for like unethical practices. Hmm. And the fact that my mother was coerced to give me away and, you know, in a home for unwed mothers feeling like she was in a crisis situation of my abusive father and she had no other choice. You know, there's, there's things about, my adoption that I thought I would never have to process like that. Yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a wild journey, but I'm very lucky because like at the end of the day, like it's become a choice for me to choose to process these things. And many adoptees don't, they don't have a choice. They cannot find their information. 
Right. And at least with my information and my knowledge, I choose where I want to go with it. Who do I want to have relationships with? And, you know, I don't have a relationship with my father. I've just never really been interested. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, there's, for me, it's been so many hard things and so many wonderful things. Like, like I said, when you find your family, you have to be ready to find the good and the bad. But what I always tell people is not only the good and the closure of that void, but the hard things that you may find about yourself or the people that you come from can also heal you. You know? Yeah. It, it can close a chapter that's been open. 100%. You know, through, through pain comes healing. You know, and vice versa, through healing, pain can come as well. And again, like I, I think you are very, I think all adoptees are very strong and resilient, which to me, those are two different things. And, you know, I think all adoptees need to give themselves a lot more credit because, you know, everything that we as adoptees go through is difficult. Um, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about adoption in general on, on both sides, like from the parents, but also from the adoptees themselves sometimes. And it's always like my hope that, you know, through having these sorts of conversations, we can explore like the good side and the bad side of the adoptee from the adoptees and from the parents as well. You know, it's, it's my hope to try to unite and try to ha- help each other see each other's side because each story is different. Each story deserves to be heard. Each story is unique. Right. As far as, you know, so many adoptees are coming out and speaking about how this has affected their life. And ultimately it is changing the narrative Mm -hmm. um, because the narrative that was portrayed to me and has been portrayed to lots of people wasn't the narrative of the adoptee. It was the narrative of a system, sometimes the adoptive parents. And first and foremost, it should be product of that system. Mm -hmm. And understanding like you also can't speak on behalf of, other people's stories. I would never speak on behalf of the story of my parents and their journey to need to adopt, nor would I speak on, you know, in depth on my mother's, my biological mother's situation. You know, what I know most is my story. Right. So what is one hope or wish that you have for other adoptees who may listen to this episode or potentially even watch it? I would say, yeah, what I said before is that even the hard things can heal. Like when I, when I found my birth father at 30 years old, for an example, the first picture I ever saw of my biological father, you have to understand like a mirror image when you're an adoptee, you don't have these things. So this is one of, you know, like, this is my biological father. The first time I ever saw his photo was a mugshot to find out that my father is an alcoholic and a abuser and you know it has been in jail for four years I mean he got out this past year Mm -hmm. I you know that it's hard because in myself I had battled addiction and alcoholism and a lot of things that I felt like were going to take me out and I still even though I don't battle that feel like damn it's hard to be here sometimes (laughs) like it just feels hard to be here And, you know, like finding those things within my biological family that I see in myself or have dealt with myself isn't pretty. Mm -hmm. And 
but also all finding those parts to are, like I said, healing. I mean, closure. I mean, a birth father who knew I existed when I reached out, like he wanted to meet me and I had the ability to say like, no, thank you. Like, like I said, like at 30 something years old, the only people that come into my life are people that are going to enrich my life. If I don't think that you can do that or I'm not positive that you can, you're not coming in no matter who you are. That put me in control of my story and my journey with that. So for that, that's a healing and beautiful thing. So give yourself credit. Like you can handle the hard things. And for me, the good and the bad that I found has been worth knowing who I am and where I come from because growing up and not knowing these things, like really, really, I mean, as a child, we're supposed to create an identity. And as an, as an adoptee, all I can say is that you are creating an identity on essentially nothing. Zilch. So in a sense, you don't even feel real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I would have to say about that. Give yourself credit. Listen to your intuition and um, your hunches. And you'll know when you're ready for these answers if you so choose to find them. And I, if you do want them, I hope you, you get there. What is next for Jessica? What, is, what are your next steps? What is next for you in your life? In my life? Continuing working with children. Um, yeah, I mean, every time I think about, oh, what else could I, should I be doing? I mean... My life is so far from where I thought it would be and, you know, in what I would be doing, but I cannot picture myself doing anything else except for, you know, chit-chatting about life experiences, working with kids, and in doing so, like, working with children, I think has been my own way of healing myself. Mm-hmm. And these children have no idea about that, you know? Yeah. They know know I'm adopted (laughs) and they ask about it all the time because I go to see my family and they're always so curious. But, um, no, working, yeah, working with little children and being a support and being the type of adult that I wish I had on my side um, is what has been for me and what is next for me. And, yeah, hopefully lots more trips to the Louisiana Bayou. I hope so. I hope so for for you as well. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Chats with Cat. A special thank you to our guest, Jess. Stay tuned for another episode of Chats with Cat every other Wednesday on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. And always remember, someone somewhere is thinking of you. You are not alone. <laughs>